0: two two four five seven two nine nine five a link to instructions including for listening over the web and how to submit your written comments will be available through wbai's main web page do you have to contribute to wbai to access the meeting no but why not All right, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Uh, The previous program was uh, Advocated for Justice with Arthur Schwartz, and that's heard Mondays at 5 p.m. I want to apologize for uh, for the listening audience not having the opportunity to listen to um, the Katie Halper show because due to the fact that there was um, uh, an electric storm and that affected us on the air. Uh, the Illuminati has not taken over the station yet. Uh, we are still broadcasting. It's just that um, it just took some time t- for to situate uh, the situation there. Um, but, more of the reason why you should donate to this radio station by calling 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for the WBAI evening news coming up real shortly. And we're about to go there right now. So stay tuned.
1: Good evening. In the news tonight, New York City eases into phase three of its reopening. President Trump delivers a Mount Rushmore rant as the number of new COVID-19 cases continues to soar across the country. Amy Cooper will face her day in court for falsely filing a police report that a black man was threatening her in Central Park. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, July 6, 2020. New York City began Phase 3 of its reopening today, which allows nail salons, massage parlors, spa salons, tanning salons, and tattoo shops to resume business. It also marks the return of some low-risk youth sports, including baseball, softball, cross-country, and field hockey. However, Phase 3 no longer includes the reopening of bars or indoor dining. We know a lot of other parts of this country, very sadly, made decisions based on something other than the data and the heat of the moment. And now what we're seeing in Florida, what we're seeing in Texas, even California that tried really hard to get it
0: right, slipping backwards, we see a lot of problems. And we particularly see problems revolving around people going back to bars and restaurants indoors. And indoors is the problem more and more. The science is showing it more and more.
1: So I want to make very clear. Uh, we cannot go ahead at this point in time with indoor dining in New York City. While the number of new COVID-19 infections has dropped to about 900 per day in New York State, the virus continues to run rampant in a number of states which chose to reopen faster. The New York Times reports that 14 states have experienced one-day highs for new infections since the beginning of the month. And from July 1st to 5th, the U.S. reported its three largest daily case totals, with a total of 250,000 people testing positive. Among those recently testing positive are 2012 Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain, who attended Trump's June 20th Tulsa rally as co-chair of Black Voices for Trump, and Kimberly Guilfoyle, a former Fox News host and currently the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr., Speaking in the shadow of Mount Rushmore on Friday evening, President Trump barely mentioned the pandemic that has killed more than 130,000 Americans, except to blame it on the Chinese. Instead, he warned of the rise of a, quote, far left fascism in the wake of the George Floyd protests.
0: Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, to fame our heroes, erase our values and indoctrinate our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities.
1: The Lakota Sioux Indians of South Dakota denounced Trump's visit in advance as they consider the giant carvings of four former presidents on Mount Rushmore to be a desecration of a sacred mountain located on their traditional lands. Rally attendees were greeted entering the Mount Rushmore site by a contingent of Native American protesters. <laughs> Elsewhere in the Dakotas, on Monday... A U.S. federal judge ruled that the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, must shut down by August 5th for an extensive environmental impact review. The ruling is a victory for the Standing Rock Sioux of North Dakota, who have long opposed the pipeline they refer to as the, quote, black snake. This comes one day after Duke Energy and Dominion Energy announced they were canceling a proposed $8 billion natural gas pipeline that was slated to run from West Virginia through Virginia and North Carolina. The pipeline was opposed by a coalition of environmentalist, rural African-American communities, and local landowners. Black Lives Matter protesters marked the 4th of July by holding protests in cities across the country, including here in New York. Thousands of bicyclists rode together through parts of the Bronx in Upper Manhattan and then down the West Side Highway. In Brooklyn, protesters celebrated the renaming of the intersection of Nostrand and Jefferson Avenues as Frederick Douglass Plaza. City Councilwoman Inez Barron used the occasion to call for greater police accountability.
0: A number of officers who, who kill us, disrespect us, and get away with it is just a sham. We have got to make
2: sure that we have police accountable to our community and to those of us who live here. We need an elected civilian review board, and I'm working on legislation.
1: Earlier this afternoon, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. announced that he would be filing a criminal charge against Central Park Karen, a.k.a. Amy Cooper, the white woman who called the police and falsely accused a black man of threatening her life after he asked her to put her dog on a leash in Central Park. The incident occurred on May 25th. Cooper was issued a desk appearance ticket and is scheduled to be arraigned on October 14th. And finally, it turns out that last Tuesday's budget deal to cut $1 billion from the NYPD budget wasn't quite what it was made out to be. In addition to promises to curtail overtime spending that are unlikely to be kept, the transfer of 5,511 school safety agents from the NYPD to the Department of Education has been delayed for one year. That transition was supposed to account for more than $300 million of the $1 billion cut, as it were, We'll talk more after the break about the austerity budget that was passed last week, who will suffer, and what we can learn from how the city has previously resolved its fiscal crises. That was the theme song from Taxi Driver, the brooding 1976 movie about crime and despair in New York City. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News, presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Now in its 20th year of publishing, I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. For this evening's show, we will talk about austerity in New York City, then and now. As many of you know, the New York City Council last Tuesday approved a city budget with billions of dollars in budget cuts, as the city continues to reel from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. From the city's schools, to its parks and libraries, to its support for the arts, almost every city department and agency will take a hit. And there may be worse to come, as the city's financial crisis could continue well into 2021 and 2022. Joining us this evening to make sense of this moment is Kim phillips Fine, a professor of history at New York University and author of Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics, and she's also the author of Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal. Fear City came out in 2017 and is widely considered to be the definitive account of the fiscal crisis of the mid-1970s that did so much to shape the politics and economics of the New York City we live in today. There was a conventional wisdom around the mid-1970s There was a conventional wisdom around the mid-1970s fiscal crisis that has hardened into something of a conservative morality tale about the evils of profligate government spending on poor and working-class people, as well as the anarchy that awaits a city when it fails to give the NYPD all the power and resources it demands. Professor Phillips-Fine, thank you for joining us on the show this evening to help us unpack that history and help us understand better where we stand today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You bet. So uh, first of all, before we delve into the past, can you give us your reaction to the to the budget that passed uh, City Council last Tuesday and the impact it will have on the people of New York City?
2: Well, I have to say this is a pretty depressing budget. And I think what's most upsetting about it is, um, well, the the two things. One is that, as you say, the budget does feature substantial cuts um, to many parts of the city budget. And it is it kind of what's especially this might be problematic on its own terms, but it also, um, you know, at a moment of real crisis for the city to have these cuts is, I think, uh, it, it's hurt. It, it, it both threatens to make the city's problems worse and is also, I think, a it feels a bit like a rupture of the social contract or of. Um, a real failure of the community to provide, to, to meet the demands of the crisis in a meaningful way. Um, oh. I think the budget is also confused. There, there's a number of features that uh, I think people are still trying to fully really understand. The much-touted billion-dollar cut to the police department um, is, if you look a little bit at the numbers, it's not clear that that is actually how it pans out. Um, and it's even things like poli- the, the Politico website reported and my kind of quick skimming of the city's own materials. It's not clear that the school safety officers even really have been moved out of the NYPD in the first year. Anyways, a lot of things that are confusing and the way I think that the public discourse around the budget is also dispiriting because, um, it is, the, the our elected officials are um, talking about it in a way that I think is more confusing than helpful for the citizenry.
1: For okay people. and um, now uh, cycling back to the fiscal crisis of the mid 1970s um, in, in, I guess in broad strokes, uh, can you describe what that was and and right. why understanding what happened then is relevant today?
2: Yeah. Well, what happened in the '70s and is is uh, you know in in 1975 the city um, you know there was a, a growing gap between the city's expenses and its revenues, and for some time the city tried to paper this over in different ways, um, both through somewhat deceptive production of information in its budget and also through short-term borrowing, but eventually. Um, there ceased to be a market for the city's debt, and the banks that financed the city said they would no longer do so. And at that point, the city entered into what I think of as the real, you know, it, it wasn't that the fiscal crisis is not just the gap between revenues and expenses. It was the period of time where the city actually, it looked like the city might have to go bankrupt or default on its debt um, and enter into bankruptcy court because there was no clear way that it was going to actually continue to meet its payroll. So the city teetered on the edge of bankruptcy for much of the, the year 1975. And at the end of that year, um, the, the federal government um, came forward with a set of loans and also banks came forward with some assistance for the city. But on the conditions that the city moved towards a truly balanced budget, and make a set of intense budget cuts that ultimately amounted to about 20% of the city's workforce. Um, and this meant a very sharp reduction of resources for the city, again, at a moment when the, the city was reeling from a set of political and economic problems, um, when poverty was rising in the city, when the homicide rate was much higher than it is now, um, when there was a, you know, a kind of a wave of arson in South Bronx and Bushwick. So the city was really in bad shape, the sudden withdrawal of resources. And so I think that's what we think of when we think of the fiscal crisis. Mm. Um, And I think, yes, as you say, this has a in-city lore and in-city politics. This is often talked about as a morality tale, that the city was just too profligate. It was spending too much. It was trying to do too much. And this is tapping into something um, the, New York in the post-World War II period did have a very ambitious, expansive city government. Um, and the, uh, the, the city government did a lot. There was a much larger public hospital system. I mean, this is still present in the city as we know it today. Um, the public transit in New York was unparalleled. The library system, the parks... It had a free, at that point, tuition-free public university in CUNY that was growing and expanding its student body and its number of campuses over the post-war years. Um, so the New York did have a very expansive government, but I think what happened to it, in part, it, it wasn't just that it had all these expenses. It also the city got caught in uh, the stare of federal policies that had encouraged suburban flight. Deindustrialization and um, local policies also that failed to keep the city's industrial base, and these, and, and as and then also the kind of deregulation of the financial sector in the '70s, which meant that many banks were less interested in um, municipal debt than they had been earlier. And these factors together, um, and you know, these are not the only things; other things too. But the sure. city was you know, responsible alone for the problems that came onto it. Um, so it was caught in this, in, you know, this, this moment of change. And that's really what led to the fiscal crisis, I think.
1: Right. And uh, uh, then as now there was a Republican administration in Washington, <laughs> the, the, the Gerald Ford administration uh, that was, unwilling to to help out. Uh, There's the famous daily news headline, uh, Ford to City Drop Dead. And and, uh, we seem to uh, be facing sort of a similar uh, uh, indifference uh, from the Trump administration right now. Um,
2: Absolutely. And I think it's, uh, well, two things. One is, yes, the federal government, the Ford administration was actually split in some ways about New York. Ford's uh, vice president was Nelson Rockefeller, who had, of course, been the governor of New York State and overseeing the expansion of debt, both in the city and, and actually at the New York state level as well. Um, but there was Rockefeller on the one side, and then there were a set of people, including Ford's Treasury Secretary, William Simon, who came out of the municipal bonds industry, uh, who was fiercely ideologically opposed to aiding New York. Um, Donald Rumsfeld as well, Ford's uh, chief of staff, and then his defense secretary, was also very intensely opposed and a very kind of they, they 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 really articulated the position that New York was doing too much, the city government was too generous, it was an example of liberalism and microcosm, and that the city's failure would teach a lesson to any government, including the federal government, of the dangers of entitlement programs. And so that in some ways they, they insisted that if New York went bankrupt, it would have no impact on the national economy. And that it just be allowed, the city should be allowed to go bankrupt. And then after that, they were also very insistent that the real issue was kind of making sure that New York made these cuts so that no city would be tempted to go down this road again. So, mm. yes, they in a very ideological way. And I think you hear echoes of that in the Trump administration. Certainly the the uh Mitch McConnell's, you know, kind of saying there will be no blue state bailouts. Um, You know, I mean, in a way it is. Unbelievable that the airlines can go and get the type of federal money they can while it's not clear that New York City school children will be able to go to school in the fall. Um, it's so there's a real, a a very, you know, the, the, there is a kind of profound question about priorities that comes up now as that. I think there are differences between the two situations too, but certainly that's a, you know, the, the, the absence of federal commitment. I mean, you know, today, of course, it's a much broader question of, it seems, the absence of federal commitment and of elite leadership to devising any coherent national response to the health crisis at all. It's not just New York, but I think it's, you know, it's 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 certainly partly there, and definitely in the case of Trump, ironic because of his base in New York and his own, um, you know, Trump really got his start in this in Manhattan real estate, coming out of the fiscal crisis, and with. Subsidies and property tax breaks, in particular, that he was able to get from the city as it's attempted to rebuild out of the crisis. So it's especially ironic,
1: right? Could and, yeah. and you talk a little bit more about how how uh, the fiscal crisis of 1975 and 76 was resolved in favor of the bankers of uh, in Wall Street right. and at the expense of New York's working class and, and right. kind of layoffs and cuts and. All of that yeah. uh, were were imposed.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the cuts in the so the the city, um, you know, in the late seventies, went through this really wrenching set of of budget cuts. Um, the hospitals were closed. This was on my mind lately. In the you know in in April, as the city's shortage of hospital beds was in the news, um, there were so public hospitals were closed after the fiscal crisis. Health clinics were closed around the city drug treatment programs were cancelled. Um, of course, there was a kind of disinvestment in transit even as the fares rose at that point. Um, the schools the schools had many layoffs of teachers, class sizes swelled, going in some cases up to 45, 50 kids per class. Art and music programs in the city's schools were cut and in some ways have never really fully been restored. Um, I think. There was a, a, um, the, the school day was actually shortened for a period of time by about 90 minutes. And so these kinds of, and then there were also cuts to, to, um, the fire department, to police, to sanitation, um, to the kind of basic city services as well. So all of these, I think, you know, these, these cuts up to parks naturally, um, and these cuts you know taken together they 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 represented a kind of assault on the collective life of the city um you could think of them as a you know there was a, there, that's something very important was being taken away was being lost um in many cases so, so that, i think that that's one level and spending eventually did begin to rise again in the city um later in the 20th century in the in the late 80s um, and then kind of more recently, of course, we have seen an expansion in city spending again. Um, but a certain, you know, you know, some some of the, the institutions that were demolished in the fiscal crisis have never really fully recovered. So, for example, I mean, CUNY is, is you know, the, the, the presence of a tuition-free city university. Um, no one has really ever talked about kind of ending tuition at CUNY again, or kind of, re, it's not as though it was an emergency measure that then was repealed once things got better for the city. It just has never come back.
1: No, public, it's kept on going up.
2: It's kept on going up, on the contrary. The, the public hospitals that were closed were not reopened. Um, so I think there's a, you know, they're, 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 they're like that it's these, and and more deeply, more broadly, in a lot of ways, the thinking undergirding city government, the sense that city government should, um, you know, has to kind of be directed primarily towards courting, um, courting corporations, courting wealthy individuals, that that's the purpose of city government and, um, the, what should guide its thinking at all points. I think that really shifted out of the fiscal crisis, um, Right, and I will the,
1: say, yeah the the really the rise of neoliberalism here in the city
2: Mhm, yeah, no, I think it's it's, it's complicated because I think one of the you know one of the, the things that I was interested in in working on the book is that the um, you know there's a certain way in which you don't find people I think people were really pushed into these positions that it's not always as though they came to it with a clear uh, political program. There, but it, nonetheless, in a certain way, it, it crystallizes out of the, the fiscal crisis, the sense that of the, the, the ultimate weakness of the state and its dependence on private economic actors and uh, then, therefore, the, the need to do anything you can to recruit and retain um, and, and to craft city policy in general with okay. the interest at the forefront.
1: Now- we're going to uh, stop here for, for a brief moment to t- take a break. And when we return, we'll talk uh, more about New York City fiscal crisis then and now and in, in particular uh, lessons we can learn from the past and, and hopefully not uh, repeat some of the some of the mistakes of the past as we face this difficult moment here in New York City. was more of the musical score by bernard herman from taxi driver in a moment we'll continue our conversation with professor kim phillips fine of new york university author of fear city but first i want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to wbai and to help keep shows like this on the air you can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to wbai.org Again, that's 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602 or give number two WBAI.org. You can make a one-time donation or better yet sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month and help keep WBAI broadcasting to the far corners of the greater New York area. And also you can help... uh, the station from descending into its own fiscal crisis. And now we're going to turn back to uh, Kim Phillips, fine, to talk more about the uh, the fiscal situation here in New York. Can you talk about the, the social movements of the 70s and, and, the, and the protests that went on and, and what we can learn from that and that part of the history?
2: Yeah, I think that's actually really important today. The, in the 70s, the common wisdom has long been that people you know, kind of accepted the, the budget cuts, they accepted the austerity, um, they understood there was no choice and they had to deal with it. But I found in my research that really wasn't the case. The cuts actually touched off widespread protests in the city. Wildcat strikes, um, different kinds of occupations of schools, campuses, libraries, um, people pressing to keep the public services they relied upon and to keep them open and running. And I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, this, we are actually, this, you know, this is a moment when that kind of popular mobilization is again needed. Um, we, there's no question that the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is responsible for focusing as much energy and attention on the city budget. And even though the, the billion dollar cut you know, may not turn out to be all that it's talked up to be, the fact that people even talking about it is actually very important um, and shows how popular mobilization is really what's going to change the situation in the city going forward. Um, I think waiting for Washington, that, that, that type of solution is not really a solution. We need instead to put popular pressure on the ground here in the city, and to, um, yeah, to, to, to work together, to, to call for the city to rise to the, um, the moment of this crisis.
1: All right. Well, that, uh, that does it uh, for this evening. Uh, uh, Kim phillips Fine, a professor at New York University and author of uh, Fear City. New York's uh, fiscal crisis and the rise of austerity politics. Thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You bet. Um, and I just, I'll say as someone who, who read the book, I, I never thought, uh, reading 300 pages about a fiscal crisis could be so interesting, but it's really a, a page turner. And I, I recommend uh, anybody who wants to know that history to, to pick up a copy of the book and, and read it this summer. Um, all righty, So. Um, last of all, special thank you to Amber Gagarian and Renee Feltz for their help with this evening's show. And also thank you to Jonah for his patience uh, with the, uh, with us. Uh, you can follow the latest news from the Independent at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And please, if you can, make a donation in the name of the show to help WBAI during its current fund drive. The number is 516-620-3602. That's 516 620 3602 or give to the number two, wbai.org and make your donation there. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back same time next week.